One of the texts this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, and the other is from the book of John. I have an idea that the book of John is going to be easier for you to find than the book of Ezekiel. So let me help you find the book of Ezekiel. It's an Old Testament book. A good way to do it is find Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and just keep thumbing to the right, and you'll find Ezekiel right after Jeremiah or Lamentations. It's the 47th chapter of Ezekiel, verses 1 through 12, and then the Gospel of John, verses 7, I'm at chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. I'd like for you to find both of these passages and just kind of um, hold the place there in John so we can go to, to it quickly. So Ezekiel chapter 47, 1 through 12, and John 7, 37 through 39. If you've been close to this church in the last two months, you know that our preaching and emphasis has been on revival, personal revival and corporate revival, as I felt led to uh, speak concerning the, um, the intervention of God in human life to bring renewal and revival and life. And so we're going to continue that today. Chapter 47, verse 1. Then he brought me, Ezekiel, back to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. And he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen, enough water to swim in, a, wa a river that could not be crossed or forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, These waters go down out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. Then they, then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the, to the sea. That's the Dead Sea. And the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will, become, and it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Egedi and Egedlim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And by the river on its bank, and on the one side and on the other, 
will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary, that is, from the throne room, and their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, and so we're going to get a commentary on Ezekiel's vision, chapter 7, verse 37 of John. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Ezekiel has his mind on Jerusalem. He has his heart in his native land. He's been um, exiled for 25 years, and yet the flame of his patriotism burns as brightly as the day he was deported. And in this vision, this dream, he was carried to Jerusalem again, and he saw Jerusalem in this vision, stood on the rock of Zion and looked down over the city that was no longer deserted and desolate. He saw the great throngs of people there in the city again. He saw the temple resurrected from its ruins. Years before, he was eyewitness to the departing of the glory of God. Now he was eyewitness to the return of the glory to the temple, tenfold greater than before. And he saw this river that flowed down past the altar and out beyond. And it's this river that, is the, that, that captures our interest this morning. Now the river flows by the altar and descends to the desert and to the plain. And everywhere it goes, it brings healing and health and fertility and life. And it cascades into the Dead Sea which contained no life, and all of a sudden there was life there. Now what is he talking about? Well, this striking event in the ministry of Jesus gives us some kind of an understanding what Ezekiel saw. The climax had come to the Feast of the Tabernacles. This feast lasted for about a week, and it was the apex, the zenith of Jewish festivity, and it took place a joyous occasion at the end of the harvest. And there was much celebrating and rejoicing at the Feast of the Tabernacle. And the high point of the week was when the high priest came from the pool of Siloam with a golden flask and poured out its content on a basin near the altar, and there was shouting and rejoicing. Picture yourself there if you can and you just put yourself in the sandals of the Jew and all of that celebration and all of that joy was taking place and the 
thing was mounting to a crescendo fervor. And all of a sudden, at the point, at that moment, Jesus stood and the King James says that he lifted up his voice. He shouted so that he could be heard above the sounding blast of the trumpet and the joyful occasion of the day. And he said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being, he shouted, shall flow rivers of living water. Thus spake he of the Holy Spirit. He could remain quiet no longer. For he saw the celebrating, and he heard the shouting and the blast of the trumpet. But he knew how hollow it was. He knew it was just a ritual to the Jews. And soon they'd go back to their habits and their fears and their apathy. And he knew that it was Christ and not ceremony. It was reality and not ritual that they hungered for. And so he unveiled to them the river of life. And they didn't recognize what he was saying, what he was doing. He was unveiling to them the river of life and they didn't see it, the water of life, and they didn't recognize it. And he wanted them to see that the life-giving river was nothing more, nothing less, was none other than the Holy Spirit of God. So what you have in this Ezekiel passage is an Old Testament story with a New Testament experience. What he is showing us is the great resource that God makes available to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He is showing us of the blessings that flow down from God to man in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's giving us a description of the revived life, of the revived life. He's showing us what God is able to do in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to follow with me then as we take a look at this Old Testament story with a New Testament message. First of all, I want you to see with me the essence, the essence of the river's power. Three things I need to say about that. First of all, the course of it. Now, the Scripture says that it flows down from the sanctuary, from the throne Hear me now. The life that God gives us at the moment of new birth is throne life, is overcoming life, is victorious life, is resurrection life, is deliverance life. The life that God imparts to the believer in Christ through the Holy Spirit is sovereign life. And he wants us to understand that the law of the Spirit of God makes us free from the law of sin and death. Now, I'm going to give you a little commercial this morning. Um, we, we have a balloon business that takes place over at our house. If you haven't heard that, well, you know, uh, my son started a balloon business when he was a college student. Now, uh, when he was a high school student, now uh, Michelle is the owner and operator of Balloons Galore, you know. You can take one of those balloons and fill it with the air that comes out of your mouth or just lay the balloon down uninflated and gravity holds it down. 
But you put that balloon on that helium tank and fill that balloon with helium and you got to hold on to it or it'll take off on you. A higher law than the law of gravity, I don't understand that, overcomes and takes over. Now what, what he's saying in this resurrection life, this dominion life, that is life by the Holy Spirit, is life that takes over and frees one from the law of sin and of death. You know what's the problem with most of us? We've become resigned to defeat. Someone said that the Christian, that the normal Christian life seems so um, abnormal, seems so unnormal to us that we consider it to be abnormal. The normal life of the Christian is victorious life, is throne life, is dominion life, is sovereign life. It comes from the throne. Notice not only the course of it, but the cost of it. This river flows from the altar, from the altar. Now stay with me, please. Before there can be a Pentecost, there must first of all be a Calvary. Before there can be fullness of spirit, there must first of all be identification with death, with Christ in death. There must first of all be an altar. For Pentecost, listen, for Pentecost is always preceded by Calvary, not historically only, but experientially. There's an altar. And the altar is the place where man gives up his life to God. I want you to understand this. This is a basic principle that applies in every, in every case. The committed will is the bottom line to the awakened life. The altar. Now I have a question for you this morning. How bad do you want the revived life? How badly do you want the awakened life? How badly do you want that? Is there an altar this morning in your life where you come and present to God those gods that are there? How badly do you want it? I heard about a little girl who went to bed at night and she was thirsty and she asked her mother to bring a drink of water so she brought her a drink of water and about 15 minutes later, she said, Mother, I'm thirsty. Bring me a drink of water. So she brought another drink. That was, that was repeated a, a third time and a fourth. And finally, the, the mother said to her daughter, Now, if you ask me for another drink of water, I'm going to come and spank you. And 15 minutes later, the little girl said, Mother, when you get up to spank me, would you bring me a drink of water? Right, so that, that's wanting it badly, isn't it? And so Jesus raised his voice and said, if you want this badly enough, if you thirst. Now how bad you want the revived life, the awakened life is measured by the altars that are in your life. There is no Pentecost without Calvary. Now what is the altar? It's the place where you put your treasure. Where is your, where is your heart? It's where your treasure is. I heard about a man who went into the church one day and he opened up a broom closet and he, found, he saw four brooms in there. Four brooms? Our church got four brooms. We don't have but one janitor. Why do we need four brooms? So he went to the janitor. He went to the custodian and said, Why four brooms? He said, Well, go see the associate pastor. 
He went to the associate pastor and said, Why do we need four brooms? Four brooms. The associate pastor does what most associate pastor, most associate pastors do. He said, See the pastor. <laughs> he went to the pastor and said, Why four brooms? He said, Man, I don't know why. I guess we need them. We need four brooms. And he just had a little tantrum and left. The pastor said, you know, to his say, What's the matter? What's going on here? What's the guy so upset about? And the secretary said, if you had all that you had given to the church in the last six months tied up in one little broom closet, you'd be upset too. Where was his heart? His heart was down at the First National Durant Bank and Trust or whatever, American National. His heart was at local bank. And where your heart is, there's where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there's where your heart is. Where's your treasure this morning? Are you willing to put it on the altar? Until you're able to do that, there'll be no Pentecost, the cost of it. And then there is the source of it. Did you notice when I read that, that as the river flowed from the altar, it just began to deepen and widen, and there were no tributaries contributing to it. I mean, it just deepened and widened. You know what that means? Let me tell you what that means. It means that the source of the river's flow was God Himself. It means that there is nothing I can add to my ministry to make it more effective than what God has already given me in the person of the Holy Spirit. It means that there is nothing we can do in the church to make it more effective than what God has already made available in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to confess that we have in the church, in the modern church, we have more better machinery. We have better trained people to, to, to lead us. We have greater facilities than we've ever had before. We lack one thing, and that's the indispensable possession of the Holy Spirit of God upon us. Let me ask this. What is there that we do in the church that we could not keep on doing if the Holy Spirit was not poured out upon us? What are we doing now that we could not keep on doing unless the Holy Spirit takes over? A few years ago, I went up to preach a revival in Love, Canada. There's a farthest place you can go north. You can go to Love, Canada and take a right and go east, but you can't go north from Love, Canada. Right outside the city, there's this big sign that says, this is the edge of civilization. And there's just, dead, there's just trees and stuff beyond far as you can go north. I can promise you that if you think last week or week before last was, was, a, was a cold week, that was like a summer day in Love, Canada in December. I mean, it was cold. It got 30 below and never got above that. And so I, I brought my bags in. I arrived in Saskatoon and got in a car and drove 150 miles to Love, Canada, north. And these people brought me, took me to their house, sweet, lovely Christian people from northern Canada. And they took me to their room, and I got my bags unpacked and everything. And they said, now here's the bathroom. I went in there. There was a, there was a bathtub. There was a, uh, there was a basin. And there was a, you know, a, uh, a commode. Now, I thought, well, it's just like, this is like being home, you know, bathtub, basin, commode. The only problem with it was it, there was no water to any of it. 
I mean, it got, it's so, so cold up there, they, they got these deep wells, and they draw water and heat the water and pour it in the bathtub when you want to take a bath, and they draw water and pour it in the commode. See, I mean, it, it, was, it had all of the, the modern facilities that we have at home except for one thing, the most, you know, the indispensable, the water, you see. Now, we come to this church, you come to your church, and you come to your Sunday school, we come to our worship services, and everything is just great and glorious, but it's of no value except it is pervaded by the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one indispensable possession. Well, now, the problem with what I'm doing this morning, what I do here, is I get so excited about point one, I preach all my time on point one. But I'm, I'm going to try to move on to point two. That was the source, the essence of the river's power. Notice, secondly, the effect, the effect of the river's flow. Now, there are three things that happen when the river flows. Three things. Um, uh, Adrian Rogers has a, has a sermon in which he talks about, he says, where the river flows, the faith, the, the, the fruit will show, the health will glow, and the fish will go. So, so three things, the effect of the river's flow. First of all, it brought fertility. Fertility. This Arabah that he's talking about is the desert region of, of, of Judea, and, and if you've ever seen it, or any kind of desert, you know that it's dry and arid and desolate. And it's the picture of the life of many of us that are fruitless and barren and desolate. And he said, everywhere this river touched, everything this river touched, everywhere this river flows, there is fruit now, he's not talking about um, success as the world deems one successful. When he talks about the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about nothing more, nothing less than the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and patience. In other words, he's saying that wherever the Spirit flows, wherever the Spirit goes, whatever the Spirit of God controls and touches, He reproduces in us the life of Jesus. Isn't that great? I can yield my life to the Spirit's control and He reproduces Jesus in me. He reproduces Him in me. As a matter of fact, Jack Taylor says that revival is just the release of the life of Christ in your life. He releases Jesus to live in me. Now, now notice that, that the believer, the, the Christian, does not produce the fruit. He, 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 he bears the fruit. The, 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 the fruit is produced by the life of the tree. The, the, the fruit... Of, of, the, of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit and your life bears the fruit of the Spirit. You know what that means? Let me see if I can illustrate it. Here was a lady who said one time, she said her kids were driving, were, were driving her crazy and she was praying, Lord, give me patience with my children. Give me patience with my children. And all of a sudden, it's like a, like a bolt of lightning. It came to her. You have all the patience that you'll ever get. Jesus lives in you. We, we pray, Lord, give me more love. You have all the love you, you, you'll ever have. For Jesus lives in you. 
What we need is to yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit and let Him release the life of Jesus in us, you see. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And notice if you read the text, he says that, that, that the fruit was a continuous thing. I mean, even in the wintertime, even in the, in the difficult times of life, even in the, in the struggles of life, the, the, pro, the character of Jesus continually reproduced in us. Fertility and healing. He said wherever the, where, where the trees were, their leaves were for healing. Watch this. You know of anything that needs healing? Is there an estrangement anywhere in this place today, in this congregation? It can be healed by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Is there a marriage? Maybe somebody watching on television. Is there a marriage that needs to be healed? There's a breach and a, re and a rift. Oh, listen, the Holy Spirit is the healer, the divine healer. Jehovah Rapha is the God of healing who heals and he said that wherever the water went, there was life. I mean, even in the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below, below sea level, the deepest place on earth, the, 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 the lowest place on earth that, where, where they, they, they took in but never gave out. And so the bromide there uh, made it impossible for anything to live. It's 25% more salty than the seawater. In that place of death, the water came and there were not just fish, but many fish. I mean, life. Has your prayer life died? Has your devotional life died? Has your love for God died? Has your ministry died? Has your service died? What you don't need is somebody to come give you another Sunday school class to teach, a little encouragement. What you need is to yield your life to the precious, reviving flow of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings life. One last thought. The essence of the river's power, the effect of the river's flow, the experience of the river's depth. Now he said that before this river got a mile from its source, it had become a river too deep to cross. Oh, I want you to do something with me this morning. I want you to look back over the miles you have traversed in your spiritual pilgrimage. Look back over them. If, if, if your relationship with God and your experience with Him is not an ever-deepening experience, there's something wrong with your relationship. I'm afraid that some of us can look back over our life and, and maybe you know, 30 to 40 miles back we begin our walk with God. And our experience with Him began with just a little trickle, you know, just a little rivulet. And it's no deeper now than it was then. There, have been, there are some folks here who have been Christians 30 miles ago. And your experience with God is no deeper than with them. I was doing a crusade out in, out in Oregon whenever I was working in the Northwest. And I picked up the, uh, the newspaper one morning, one Sunday morning, getting ready to go to church. 
and trout season had opened in Oregon and the Northwest. And it showed a little old stream about, about this wide. I'm not exaggerating. But you could step over it without even any struggle. And just people, wall to wall people, they're fishing in that little old stream about that wide. I thought, man, how are they going to catch anything? I mean, you could, you could step over that thing, really. There are some people this morning whose experience with God is no wider, no deeper than that. Now notice what happens. He says that when, he, when the measuring man put me in the stream, it was at the ankles, just a trickle of water. And then to the knees. Oh, listen, friend. This relationship with God is developed on your knees. Down upon your knees. Oh, people of First Baptist Church, down upon your knees. Now, it's not possible for you to go around voicing prayer with your mouth all day, but it is possible to have that heart that's Godward all day. Down upon your knees. John Hyde surrendered to be a missionary to India. As he started to leave to go to India, India, a lady gave him a letter when he got on the boat to leave. He opened it on the boat and the lady said, John, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? He was offended by that. Me? Filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm a missionary, am I not? But that haunted him. And out there in India, he began to develop a prayer life. A life with God. I mean, the Holy Spirit took over his life. On his knees, he developed this deepening relationship with Christ that was like a river flowing out of his innermost being and touching others to the point that the Indian people called him Praying Hyde. H-Y-D-E. And he prayed four hours a day, every day. It's significant that he led four people on the average, four people to Christ every day while he was in India. Someone told about a pastor up here at Tulsa who decided, who got a burden on his heart, that he's going to spend every morning from the office hour beginning at 8 o'clock till 12 o'clock every morning in prayer. And he told the secretary not to bother him. He didn't know how he's going to get his work done, but he is going to develop a relationship with God in prayer. Down upon his knees he went, and every morning he went to pray. And the first morning he spent all morning in prayer, came out of his office wondering how he's going to get his job done that day. And a man was standing there and said, I came off the streets, led to this place. Can you tell me how to be saved? And then the scripture says that the water came to his loins. Watch this. The place of his strength right here in his, in his cave, right here in his thighs and the loins, his strength. Listen to me. You know what may be your greatest hindrance to God as far as God is concerned? It may be your strength. The greatest hindrance to God in your life may be your strength. You say, well, well, what are you talking about? Well, God likes to use weak people because in weakness He is perfected. You say, well, can't He use strong people? Yes, if you let Him make you weak. You say, can't He use rich people? Yes, if you'll, if you'll die to your riches because God likes to get the glory. And so Paul says in that experience where he was buffeted by the thorn, he said, God sent a blessing to my life. What was the blessing? The thorn that made me weak the thorn that made me weak. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to God 
that you have in your life is your ability. Are you willing to let the Spirit of God make you weak? And then he said, I begin to swim in the river. That is, immersed, controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, Leslie Drummond, in his new book called The Revived Life, tells his story, and I'm through. He said that, that when he was a pastor of a small church, a student, Southern Seminary, a lady by the name of Anna Kim, a Korean, came to his church and gave her testimony. Anna Kim lived in Korea at the pre, in the pre-World um, War II days. And um, it was before the, the Far East got involved in the war so much. And she was one day engaged in prayer. And God told her to go to Tokyo and speak to the warlords and call them to repentance. And she didn't know what that was all about, but it was so strongly impressed upon her that she go to Tokyo and preach to the warlords that she bought a one-way ticket to Tokyo. And she went into their parliament or whatever it was, and she sat in the balcony, and she listened to the warlords as they discussed war, going to war. And she said, while there, when there was a lull, she shouted down. She had on a scroll. She pulled it out, her message. She shouted down to the parliament beneath her in session. And she shouted, Ye men of Satan, repent or God will judge you. And she threw her scroll down to the floor. And they arrested her. She thought they would execute her. Hence the one-way ticket to Tokyo. But they didn't. For some strange reason, they sent her back to Korea and put her in arrest, put her in prison. They put her in a cell that was 10 by 25 with 20 other people. Can you imagine that? 10 feet by 25 and 25, 21 people in it. And she told, he said she told that the stench and the filth was so great to describe it, he said, made me nauseated. She lost her hair. She lost her sight. But she never lost her faith. And she won everybody in the cell to the Lord. She won all the guards that kept watch to the Lord. Every day they would take her out of her cell and they would take her to the officials and they would say, Anna Kim, renounce your God and we'll set you free. We know that this false God has caused you to do this. Bow down to, 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 to the pagan God of Korea and we'll set you free. She wouldn't do it. They began to call her out and said, just promise that you will and we'll set you free. She wouldn't do it. Just say you will and, and we'll, when we let you out and we'll let you go. But she wouldn't do it. Finally, one of the guards said to her one night, Tomorrow, Anna, they've given up on you. They're going to kill you. They're going to execute you. But we've devised a plan for your escape. Now we're going to let you out of here tonight, and you're going to escape. Well, she said, Well, of course not. If I die, I'll just go to heaven. And that's where I'm headed anyway. I want to go there. I don't want... I, well, of course I won't escape. So she went and slept all night. The next morning she woke up to the sound of singing, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. She thought she was in heaven. 
<laughs> she, she thought they were singing in heaven, but she, as she kind of got, you know, got awake and aware, she knew it wasn't something. She saw the cell where she was, and the sounds were coming from the outside. Christians marching to the prison to release her. The war was over. That's what Ezekiel's talking about when he talks about the river that you swim in. There's victory. There's healing. There's life. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. Would you do that? And so God said through the messenger to Ezekiel, Son of man, do you see this? In other words, have you ever experienced anything like this? Do you know anything? I ask you, do you know anything like this? Would you pray with me? Father, we thirst for the awakened life and we hunger for the revived life where the Holy Spirit is in control what He touches where He is there is healing fertility and life upon our knees we yield our strength to Thee. Upon our knees, the bowed heart and the committed, surrendered will, we pray, Holy Spirit of God, take control of this life, of this life, of this church, of this community. Yea, Lord, yea, do it today. We crown you the Lord of our life. In Jesus' name.